The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with Matter Private Network. During current restrictions, don't ignore your health concerns. Our expert team is ready to help. Well, now we're joined by Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Luke, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, I've had a number of queries uh, from people about mixing and matching vaccines. Uh, the idea, for example, I came across uh, one uh, woman who has an underlying condition and got one jab of AstraZeneca and is waiting, obviously, the 12 or 16 weeks, whatever was proposed for the second jab. Meanwhile, her husband has got two jabs of Pfizer and is fully vaccinated and she's the, the yeah. vulnerable one. So mixing and matching, yeah. um, there are some countries already doing it. It's a very hot topic, Pat, at the moment. This is the, one of the key topics in immunology at the moment is should, should this be allowed, basically. There's no reason not to do it, by the way, from the immune system's point of view. Other vaccines, we often mix and match, you see. Now, Spain have decided to mix and match. So they've got 1.5 million people there on AstraZeneca. They will now be given the option of Pfizer or Moderna as the second shot. They can stick with AstraZeneca if they want, but they'll have a choice now. They can go for Pfizer if they wish. And it's the first country to allow that. Now Canada have just said they're allowing allowing Pfizer as a second shot after AstraZeneca so suddenly people are waking up to this as a possibility and many of us supported Pat, it's a really good thing to do because you may get a better response interestingly secondly it'll speed up the whole process if you're not depending on the second shot and I think in Ireland especially the over 60s, they've been so put upon Pat and many many would like Pfizer and and I would definitely support that now because I think that would give them a bit of a dig out for a start the way they've been treated so there's no reason basically what Spain and Canada are saying there's no reason not to mix and match, which is a really, really interesting development. Okay, um, a number of people asking that very question: Could I get Pfizer uh, after a first shot of AstraZeneca? The answer is well, according to Spain and Canada, yes. Yeah. Um, don't know whether the EMA have come up definitively with an answer, but uh, you know, we we wait and see, wait. and hopefully yep. we'll be quick off the mark. By the way, I just saw a headline flashing up that Hikwa is saying that post COVID immunity last nine months and not six months. Yeah, well, that, that's the latest guess. But another very important fact about this morning I want to mention, there's a guy called Peter Doherty. He won the Nobel Prize for discovering how T-cells fight viruses. We, we all know him. He's actually a virus. He's Australian and I know him quite well. You know, He is now saying AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer gives a great prime boost. So there we have a Nobel laureate giving the thumbs up to using uh, Pfizer after So in other words, the, the, um, the opinion is growing. This should be allowed. And I think I'd, I'd, I'd press for it in Ireland as well. Um, Other news, Pfizer are actually testing a pill to treat SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, a pill. That's or right, an injection right. or something anyway that would sort it. That's right, exactly. Now again I think as we just there's a frenzy out there in the companies to try and find a tablet that'll kill the virus, an antiviral, you know. And and things are working by the way, but a drug called budesonide, which you inhale, it's an inhaled steroid. That will be beneficial with people to early disease. Dexamethasone is being used as well for more late disease again, that's a steroid. And a drug called tocilizumab. But now, yeah, Pfizer say they have a drug which may well kill the virus, which would be tremendous. It's It's called a protease inhibitor. Now, proteases are very important for viruses, and they all have their own proteases. The HIV drugs, for instance, target its protease, same with hepatitis C. So SARS-CoV-2, it's called 3C-like protease, and Pfizer say they've got a really potent drug to block that. And if you block that, the virus can't assemble. It's very important for assembling the virus. And they've completed the phase one trial. They're starting the phase two. And they say by the end of the year, maybe, that tablet might be available, which would be tremendous. So it's, in other words, we'd now have a, a, a tablet to use if anybody tests positive. You could take this antiviral. So this would be a really good development. 
Mm. Uh, you sent me some of the science on, on this and the whole, whole idea of the virus when it gets in. It's got a bit of work to do <laughs> yeah. to infect you. And the, the idea of this drug would be to, to get in there and keep knocking down the building blocks Precisely. that they're trying to assemble. Precisely. And the drug remdesivir does that anyway. The, the remdesivir targets another piece, another building block, if you like. And that was shown to decrease hospital stay. It, did, it didn't affect lethality, sadly. There was still a mortality. But if you get that remdesivir in early enough and stop that building block, that can show a benefit. But this one looks even better. And, and Pat, this will work against any coronavirus, you see. This is the other good part. Because it was shown to work against SARS and MERS, the other two. And of course, if it should so happen, another coronavirus jumps, this could then be used there as well, you see. So that's another reason why it's important to develop these antivirals. Now, something that is uh, on many people's lips, the idea of a COVID stone or a couple of COVID kilos there's now science. There is. And this is important, Pat, as well, because lockdown has to be the last resort because obviously we all know lockdown was needed. But again, there are negative consequences of lockdown and one is weight gain. And that can have all kinds of problem, problematic effects and on health, as we know. You know, 36 studies, Pat, were looked at together and often scientists group studies to look for trends between them. And they all reported weight gains during lockdown and between 11 and 72% of people reported they'd put on weight. There's a range, obviously, between each study. And then uh, the other interesting thing was there were 32 studies looked at dietary change and snacking went up of all things. So people said they were taking more snacks and of course alcohol consumption went up as well in between 10 and 51% of people on that uh, particular set of studies reported increased alcohol intake. Now Pat, this has to have long-term health consequences, the fear, Mm -hmm. you know, because obviously weight gain is a negative for many diseases and alcohol consumption can be negative as well. So I think it's important because it shows we must consider lockdown to be the the last resort in many ways because there are our consequences to lockdown. One of the issues would probably be a, a psychological one that people develop a habit of particular foods, snacking, maybe the glass of wine, watching the telly, because we deserve it after all. We've been put through this pandemic and that becomes a lifetime habit. Yeah, exactly. And that might come on for years then precisely. Yeah, so it's important. And again, what I like about this, but is often these studies are, are difficult to get a conclusion from, but the fact that so many studies combined show this is happening, that makes it all the more relevant. Now, did this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, did it come from the lab in Wuhan or not? Yeah, that, that's the, I mean, as you probably saw last week, Joe Biden has told the intelligence agencies to try to find out. The UK have deployed their intelligence agencies to get in there and try to find out. And it's it's a, obviously an unknown still, which is a bit strange, given that we've been with this virus now for so long, we still don't know where it came from. What's triggered this is there, there is a Wuhan Institute for Virology in Wuhan which studies coronaviruses. Now you can begin to put two and two together and worry then, you know. But last November, it looks, or November 2019, before it all started actually, three workers in that institute went to hospital with an unusual flu. So they're wondering now, did they catch the virus in the lab, an accident, you know, that the, the test tube dropped or whatever it might be, you know, and did it infect someone? And that's what they're trying to find out. And they're going to try to dig in to all the data as much as they can, the lab records, they want to get access to those and various things just to see if it was an accident. If it is an accident, Pat, it's not the worst thing because that would mean the chance of it happening again is less, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's from the wild, there's a chance of a wet market or people encountering bats in the wild. It might all take off again with another one, you know. So if it's a lab accident, it, is, it sounds like a dangerous thing, doesn't it? But, but it's still, they need to find out. Just The main reason is to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Now, um, the people who are kind of pushing the lab accident uh, theory or, you know, whether it was some sort of malign intent on the part of uh, Chinese researchers to do something with coronaviruses. Um, Those people are saying, you know, where's the intermediate creature? 
Yeah. How did it, you know, the missing link, as it were. But you say it might take a while to find a missing link if there is one there anyway. Well, the best evidence that's in the wild is if you find a bat in the wild with the same virus that infects us, then you know it came from a bat in the wild, you know. And they're trying to hunt that down, actually. They're taking many, many samples from bats all over China to try to see if, if the virus that's in us is in a bat. You know, the closest relative is 96% identical, which gives us the idea it might have been a bat and that might have changed into this one, if you know what I mean. So, so again, the bat hunter, are, are very active at the moment to see if they can that would, that would give us the evidence if it was in the wild you see and then the second approach is can we get the lab records they're asking now for it's the dark web strangely path they're looking into because it looks you know there's a chance that the records aren't there or they can't get access to them you know so now they're trying to find out in other words if there was a lab record of this virus can you imagine Pat that would mean it probably did come from a lab but more than likely accidental it's, it's the idea that it was engineered is not, not there there's no evidence this is an engineered virus you see by the way, what's this thing gain of function um, that they talk about? So-called gain of function yeah. work being done in, in Wuhan in the lab. What, what is gain of function? That's the, the very dangerous end of virus research. You try to make a virus that's especially malign, shall we say, just to study it, you know, to make sure that we know exactly what, what the worst case scenario might be, you see. And, and they do make gain of function versions of viruses in lab settings, you see. So now, again, there's no evidence that this was a gain of function mutant because you can see that. There'll be marks in the virus, you see, if it's been tampered with, you know, in a lab. Uh, you can you can see those marks, so that that seems to be unlikely. The WHO, remember, went in already. They weren't given the task of looking at the lab much, though. Their main job was to look in the wild. But they said it's un- they did go to the lab, by the way, and they said it's unlikely to have been an accident because everything seemed to be in order there. You know, so that their conclusion was unlikely mm-hmm. that it came from a lab. But still, it's an unanswered question. Yeah, and they weren't given much uh, access. They weren't given access to everything in the lab. Um, but you know, why not? If it was an accident in the lab, why not the Chinese put their hands up and said? You know, stuff happens. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, they're afraid they'd be sued by the world for yeah. unleashing SARS-CoV-2 on them. Anyway, I wanted to mention someone else um, who is really a hero of this piece. Her name is Catalin Carico, who works in the University of Pennsylvania. And she was a pioneer. We're, we're all letting uh, mRNA trip off our tongues. Well, it's normal for you to do that. But for me, as if I knew something about it. But this woman was really a pioneer in this field. She's extremely important. Pat. And if there is a Nobel Prize, which there may well be, remember, for this, she, I'd, I'd have her as on the list because she made RNA into a drug in many ways because RNA can be quite a toxic molecule. And in fact, RNA can be sensed by the immune system and it can be seen as an alien thing, you know. And she managed to modify the RNA to make it less immune activating less toxic if you like and now the RNA then makes the spike you know she was able to modify it I met her actually strangely enough because many years ago so RNA is sensed by a thing called TLR3 in the immune system she modified it so it wasn't sensed by that anymore you know and that made it safer so she gets, she gets the credit for making the breakthrough because it really was a breakthrough Pat. she was able to modify the RNA to make it a safe thing to use as, as a medicine either in a vaccine or in other contexts so if she hadn't done her work we wouldn't have that Pfizer vaccine in Moderna and an academic working, in, by the way, we like giving universities praise. She was in the University of Pennsylvania where she did all this. And she was ignored. I mean, that's a strange thing. She couldn't get her grant renewed at one time because it's in this obscure area, you know. But she doggedly stuck at it. So if ever anybody deserves a big pat on the back, it's Katarina. Carico did a great job. There's all sorts of things uh, with RNA, messenger RNA, treating sickle cell disease could be used to change the instructions going to the bone marrow where the red blood cells are made. Blind man having his sight partially restored after 40 years, autoimmune diseases, uh, Lyme disease, things like that all could be helped, treated if not cured 
by the use of an appropriate messenger RNA. Exactly, and, and she kind of cracked the way to make it safe, is the best way to put it, I suppose, you know. And all those tests showed it was safe. And, of course, there's still anxieties about vaccines, but she was the one who really made that approach very, very safe. And now you can imagine, it could be, as you say, it could be used in many different diseases, which would be tremendous. Um, now, so many questions coming in. Luke, I had a small dose of Botox eight days ago, and my vaccine is this weekend... Are the two compatible? There wouldn't have been a study on that, sadly, not that I'm aware of. And that wouldn't surprise me, given that the vaccine has been in... It's amazing this morning, 1.8 billion people, isn't that amazing, have had one of these three or four vaccines. You never know. There may be Botox treated people in there, but I haven't seen it. Okay, but they look great when they're getting the vaccine. (laughs) And they're not frightened Um, of needles either, yeah. Teenage girl with severe needle phobia. I've tried a psychologist, etc., but uh, unfortunately, with no ado. Any news on nasal or oral types of vaccines? Absolutely. I mean, again, the amount of effort that's going into this that is remarkable. There's lots of companies trying to develop oral vaccines, and also the intranasal route is a really good one to use because then it goes straight into your lungs, and it may be even better. Sadly, for that person, nothing approved yet, but that will come. I'd be very confident there'll be a nasal one. I'd say in the coming months because they, they can just. Re- formulate the one they have you see from an injectable form into an inhaled form and that isn't that difficult to do so now there's, there's tri- trials running at the moment so sadly there are ways around needle phobias I'm sure that person is looking into it in various ways mm-hmm. some people are frightened of needles you see it's understandable so but not for the moment sadly there's no, there's no alternative yet yeah, I must say, when I got the the needle from the GP, I didn't even notice it. It was done before well, I had a chance to chat. Well, the technology in the needle got better, but it's a very, very narrow needle, you know. You hardly mm. feed it at all. So maybe reassure the person, say it's like a micro needle almost. You know, just, just because people don't like needles, that was one reason why they, they made the needles a bit, a bit narrower. And this text, uh, can you ask Luke? I had COVID in October and I had one vaccine of Pfizer. The second one is due next week. Do I actually need the second vaccine if I had COVID already plus one dose of vaccine? That's still the recommendation, but I think that's another one they should change because the evidence has grown and grown. If you've been infected and then you get one shot, that's a fantastic boost to the immune system. So one shot, the view is one shot suffices if you've been infected. And I suspect NIAC, all the agencies around the world are looking at this, by the way, so they may well say if you're definitely infected, all you need is one shot. But for the moment, they're still recommending you go for the second. Um, there were reports of facial swelling after facial fillers had been injected. That's just a by the way, I suppose. Uh, I'd be over 70 when I receive the second dose of AstraZeneca if the timeline stays at 16 weeks. I'm very nervous. I don't want to take it due to a history of strokes in my family. That's from Fran and Wexford. Oh, well, great news as well, but they pushed it to eight weeks. Have you seen that yesterday? So that's tremendous yep. news. And NIAC have made a decision there, which is brilliant. And now it's eight-week gap, so I suspect that person will be called sooner. All those people waiting, they'll be called sooner now, which is great, you know. Uh, the stroke thing, that's not a concern because the type of blood clots that uh, you see with these rare events with these vaccines are very different to regular blood clots, you know, so there's, they're very different situations and all the haematologists uh, say, don't be worried if you have a history of clotting, still take these vaccines because it's a very different type of clotting. Uh, can you ask Luke about the research from Israel about the number of people with an enlarged heart problem? Yeah, that's important. Yes, yeah. so again, the pharmacovigilance, as we call this, is still happening. In other words, they're getting every piece of data from vaccinated people, remember, just to see what might happen for scientific or possibly, you know, worrying things. And yes, there's been reports of a heart problem, but it's extremely rare, the first thing to say. Now, remember, if you vaccinate millions and millions of people, a small number will show certain things, no matter what you do, you know. But it's extremely rare and it's very treatable. It was, and, you know, it was, it was very mild, you know. So again, but again, it's listed as a, as a possible side effect, of course, but it's so rare that it wouldn't worry us. It wouldn't stop us using those vaccines at all.
I just got a, a paper sent to me from the Aesthetic Society. It's recently been reported that three patients with dermal fillers have had adverse reactions to the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. In two of these cases, localised facial swelling occurred after vaccination and in one, lip angioedema hmm. two days after vaccination. Each of these cases was resolved after treatment with steroids and or antihistamine. And the FDA intends to note this in its prescribing information, which is fine. So it's not a major side effect. No. If you have these facial fillers, just thought in case anyone is well, involved in yeah. Botox and, and all for that. For me, but it's good because, in other words, e- even extremely rare things are being spotted. They aren't slipping to the net. You'd, you'd worry if you see four or five people out of a million, you'd miss it, you know. But yet they've spotted those, which is great. And then they're like, oh, is there anything going on here? Let's measure it and let's see. And then and that ter- sounds, I haven't heard that now, but that sounds like as if it's not a problem, which is great to hear, you know. Okay, so again, a number of questions from people who are in the vulnerable cohort got AstraZeneca and are waiting. Hopefully the eight weeks will bring it forward. But they're wondering, um, you you know, given that, for, for example, they're no longer prescribing AstraZeneca for the younger people. And if you're young and vulnerable, you might have got your first shot of AstraZeneca, should you make sure your second shot is not AstraZeneca because you're still in the same age cohort that is seen to be vulnerable to those rare side effects. I think in the fairness, Pat, I would give all the over 60s Pfizer as a second shot. We we now have 284,000 doses of Pfizer. Brian Brian McCraw announced yesterday has just come into the country. We have a massive supply of Pfizer. And that's what the Canadians did. They realised they have loads of Pfizer. Let's give it to people as a second shot after AstraZeneca. I don't see why we can't do that here, especially in the over 60s because they do feel very put upon. uh, the, the, The particular question is about the under 30s you know who are vulnerable who have underlying health oh, effects yeah. they yeah. wouldn't give them AstraZeneca today yeah. under the protocol but they got AstraZeneca before the, uh, the the warnings were mentioned should they not certainly be given AstraZeneca so. should they be given Pfizer that's what the Spanish have done it's the under 60s they're giving yeah. AstraZeneca second you know as opposed to AstraZeneca so absolutely everybody in that younger group should be given Pfizer as a second shot and a final one, uh, and we'll be talking about this a bit la- later on. What about around the world and the flu uh, pandemic that we normally experience? Not Nothing like the pandemic from COVID-19, but we tend to get a universal flu. Um, what of it this year? That's the, well, it looks as if the, there was hardly any flu, as you know, Pat. It's amazing, isn't it? And all the data now stacks up that flu was almost absent from many countries because of all the measures we took. Mainly the, the surface wiping and the hand washing, because that really stops flu, you see. So that was really good, you know. That means flu levels were negligible last winter. And who knows, maybe we'll get another winter without the flu because the virus has nowhere to go then, you know, and it can't grow in people, basically. So the chance of another flu variant cropping up, as we know, every winter is lessened by what we're doing. So the flu experts are... are I was on a call yesterday, actually, with some influenza experts. They're, they're amazed by this, you know. They'll be out of a job soon, basically, because flu seems to be sort of ramping down. So let's keep our fingers crossed. All right, Luke, uh, all very interesting stuff. Thank you very much for joining us. Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Now- 